0: In the prophecy, first Isaiah 35, and then Isaiah 61, the first three verses. Both of these passages, and there are more actually in the prophecy of Isaiah that the Lord Jesus refers to in our text for this morning in Matthew 11. We'll read then some of this Some of these passages in the Old Testament. First, Isaiah 35. We'll read the whole chapter together. The word of the Lord speaks to us as follows The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing, shall flee away. That's Isaiah 35. We'll turn ahead to Isaiah 61. We're going to read there the first three verses, which is going to give us enough of a sense of the prophet's concern in this chapter. And after we've we've read from these words of Scripture, we'll sing in response Psalm 146, stanzas 4 and 5. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound The text for the preaching of the gospel this morning is taken from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 11. So we move ahead some chapters in the gospel account. Last time we dealt with the end of chapter 4, we're going to move ahead now to chapter 11 and our text is the verses 2 through 6. where our text reads, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. After we've heard the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response. Hymn 25, stanza 1 who has believed our message. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you could ask the Lord Jesus in person one question, what would you ask about the future about the past. We know that Christ is, of course, seated at God's right hand, so we have to wait to see Him face to face. But that doesn't mean we don't have our questions. We all have to wrestle through times in our life with, where, with our heart, we'd love to receive an answer. But with our mind, we know we may never get one. John the Baptist has a burning question for his Lord. And it was a question concerned with neither the past nor the future, but with the present. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, that's not a question we today would ask of the Lord Jesus, is it? After all, the Bible tells us that this Jesus is the one who is to come. We don't expect someone else to come. And yet, at the same time, our expectations of this very Messiah are not always met, which has more to do with us than our Savior. John the Baptist thought he knew all that was expected of the Messiah. That's what prompts him to ask his question. And actually, yes, it's a question that's really not that foreign to you and me, though we might use different words. It's a question that calls for a gentle but firm response. And that's what makes Jesus' response beautiful. His last message to John in prison is the answer to any and all questions or expectations John had, or that we might have, of our Lord who now is in heaven. I'm going to preach to you then the word of the Lord in this way. Blessed is the one not offended by the ministry of Christ. And we'll look at three things. First, the confusion in John. Secondly, the clarity that comes from the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, the challenge for you and me. So first, in the confusion in John the Baptist. John, of course, is in prison, in a prison cell. He's there because he rebuked Herod for illegitimately marrying his brother's wife, Herodias. And so some of the disciples that John had while he was in active ministry, they are now following Jesus Christ. Well, news comes to John's ears of just how Jesus is doing in his ministry, what he's up to. Verse 2 says that John heard in prison the deeds of the Christ. Since John's imprisonment, a whole lot has happened. Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. He healed after that a leper, a centurion servant, Peter's mother-in-law, Two men with demons, a paralytic, two blind men. He calmed the storm, he called more disciples for himself. You go ahead to Matthew chapter 10, and he's there equipping his disciples to do his works of helping people. And he's also calling them to be fearless in bringing the message of the kingdom of Christ. Surely upon hearing these deeds of the Christ, John would be impressed, no? John's reaction is not really what you and I would have expected. John sends words by his disciples to Jesus to ask him the question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect someone else, or shall we go looking elsewhere? Why this question? In the history of interpretation in the church, men like Augustine, Luther, and even Calvin said that John asked the question for the sake of his disciples in order to bring them to John's own certain faith in Christ. Unfortunately, this interpretation falls somewhat short. For what can you and I learn from a character sketch of John the Baptist? John, of course, had gone out and commanded the crowds bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John wanted to see trees bearing fruit. Yet he urged this with a deep concern over what's to come. He declared with conviction that God is coming in his judgment. He says in Matthew 3 verse 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Beloved, to put it in a word, John prophesied division. Using the image of sifting grain at harvest time, John illustrates what the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, is going to accomplish when he comes. Just as a winnowing fork tosses the grain in the air to separate the wheat from the chaff, so Christ would come to separate people. John prophesied this Christ is coming. He will gather the true believers, but he's going to punish those who don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what John came to expect. And of course, that's not all. We know more. God also brought, by his grace, he brought John face to face with the one prophesied to be the Messiah. John 1, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was saying, that's him. That's the one I was talking about. He's the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. So John was very much confronted with the Messiah. He's seen the one prophesied to come He was there, of course, at his baptism, and he had some pretty high expectations of Jesus Christ. Like others in Israel, John had expected that the Messiah would rise up to a level of fame as the mighty Messiah. In John's mind, the one to come was mainly a figure of power. Yes, a bringer of judgment. He was supposed to come with fire with an axe in one hand to chop down unfaithful, unfruitful trees and a shovel in the other to sift out the chaff. He expected Jesus to bring judgment upon the complacent, the lazy, the backslidden in Israel and upon the enemies of the Kingdom of God and to immediately establish a reign of peace and prosperity He was not really expecting the Messiah to be baptized in water or to call to his side fishermen, men of so little influence. He wasn't expecting a message like the Sermon on the Mount, for even though Jesus preached there with authority, his sermon seems more concerned with putting axes in the hands of his opponents rather than in the hands of his own disciples. Don't avenge, expect persecution, don't be violent, love your enemies. Are these the deeds of the Christ that John foretold? Would the one to come really start out his ministry in the sticks, in Galilee, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Why not on ground zero in Jerusalem? That's the best place to throw your weight around. Make some noise, ruffle the feathers of the corrupt religious powers that be, and make a huge impact on the nation. And oh, sure, you can do a miracle here or there with that individual or this one, but whatever happened to go big or go home, we get the idea. Jesus is not living up to John's expectations. He's not doing much to change the evil structures that Israel has in place. So here lies the reason for John's question, beloved. It was for his own sake. John is confused. Even more, really. He's experienced something of a crisis in his faith. He's having doubts. To be sure, he would not have been troubled by Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, and preaching the gospel. John himself was, of course, also a herald of the same gospel. But John was troubled that Jesus was devoting all of his time to this. John is seeing and hearing about Mr. Nice Guy. He was having this great difficulty harmonizing what Jesus was doing and what John thought Jesus was prophesied to do. What's going on here? When is Jesus going to do something worthy of the name Messiah? When is he going to free Israel from Roman supervision and give to Israel her independence? Where is his winnowing fork? When is he going to come with fiery judgment? Why am I here in prison, so forcibly removed from my task of preaching? Why doesn't he show his dominion and get me out of here? John could have easily been thinking of a passage such as Isaiah 35, where in the verses 4 through 5, the poor and the anxious are promised, behold, Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. John is confused. Where is the judgment that was promised alongside of the blessing? A little less blessing and a little more judgment, please. Or shall we go now looking for another to come and redeem Israel? On the one hand, brothers and sisters, it's surprising, isn't it, that John asks this question. He's being rather confrontational here. There would be something like a student coming up to his teacher and asking, Are you the teacher? Or should we go looking for somebody else? The question suggests simply, I don't think you're really measuring up. So John's question is a little surprising to us. But in another sense, it shouldn't. If we consider who John is, he's human, after all. Even a man like John, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth, we read in the scriptures, A man of such importance in the Bible, even he could wrestle with who Jesus really is. Believers in Christ do doubt. You might even say that we can be grateful that John asked the question for us. Scripture is honest and it's open about the fact that people doubt. Even heralds of the gospel do doubt. You too may doubt. You may be struggling with it right now in the time of your life. Questions, of course, enter our minds. Why is there so much brokenness in the, in the church? Why is the church like this? Or why do I struggle with the same sin over and over Or what's the purpose? What's God's purpose for leading me through this dark night of the soul? Or why is the church so fiercely under attack today? Why is God allowing Islam to threaten Christianity? For nearly 1,400 years now, they've been a thorn in the church's side. When is judgment going to come? When is Christ going to act definitively? Why isn't the Lord Jesus doing something? This is what all these questions amount to. It's what John is asking, and we can do the same. Expectations vary. We sometimes expect him to govern his church in a certain way, to rule the world in a certain fashion, or to answer our prayers in the way we think that he should. And when he doesn't fulfill our expectations, we can question him, challenge him, and yes, even doubt him. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Savior who was promised that God would send him? We find the answers. our questions by considering who Christ Jesus is and what he does. We work through our doubts by looking at the Lord himself. This is what John is doing here. Rather than constantly turning his own doubts over in his mind, he sends his disciples to Jesus for an answer. That's our second point, where we see that there is clarity coming from the Lord himself. So Jesus sets out to silence the doubts of John. And he doesn't attempt to suddenly meet John's expectations. He doesn't change his ministry by raining down judgment on all the wicked. Rather, he simply explains what he's been doing all along. Verse four, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk lepers are cleansed, and the poor of good news preach to them. That's a fitting summary of the work of Christ. But you might ask, why does Jesus say it this way? Well, his words would have struck a chord with John the Baptist. In the reply of Jesus, John would have heard Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus is referring here to the prophecies in Isaiah. He indeed alludes to Isaiah 35, which we read earlier, I mentioned in the sermon earlier. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He also refers to Isaiah 26, verse 19. Where the prophet says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. And lastly, he quotes from chapter 61 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. All of these texts in the prophecies are prophecies of the coming promised salvation. They all refer to the Lord's future work, his future reversal of the miserable effects of the fall. And so Jesus explains that in his own ministry, he's the fulfillment of these prophecies. He's the one whom God sent to do away with the real problems in the world. It's not Roman supervision, but sin and suffering. This is the task of the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would display his power when the sick are shown mercy and the gospel is proclaimed. This is what Christ is doing, and this is then how Christ needs to describe his ministry to John's disciples. God was shining through the darkness in the royal work of Jesus the Messiah, showing mercy, preaching the gospel. Exposure to his work and word was to bring faith. And if those quotations were not enough for John the Baptist, there's something else that Jesus is doing here that underscores the character of his ministry. It's what he does not say that's equally noteworthy. In each of those passages that John quote, that Jesus quotes, there is a strong word of judgment. We saw that in Isaiah 35, Behold, your God will come in with vengeance. It's also what we read together in Isaiah 61. Verse 1 continues, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. The point we need to see is when Jesus refers, when he alludes to these passages, passages that John would have known, he doesn't quote, doesn't refer to the parts about judgment every single time, cuts it off. In other words, the Lord here is not validating John's desire to see judgment alongside of blessing. This omission on Jesus' part is deliberate. He does it on purpose. Adds to the picture of what Jesus really was concerned with at this point in his ministry. Not judgment upon the nations, but showing mercy and preaching the gospel to those who needed it. John the Baptist felt that Jesus should be doing more than what he was doing, that he should be coming with fire and judgment. But Jesus' message is one of mercy and grace. And so Jesus responds to John's question by reminding him of something very vital. John does not determine when and how the Messiah should fulfill prophecies. It is the right of the Messiah alone to fulfill what He will fulfill, to fulfill what God wants him to fulfill. So Christ does not modify, he doesn't tweak his ministry. Instead, he looks to reassure John by simply telling him of his words and his deeds. He points to the scriptures to reassure John the Baptist that Christ was doing exactly what God had promised. Our text is another one that reminds us that Jesus doesn't work according to our expectations. He works according to the agenda that his Father had given him. Instead of making others suffer by way of fire and brimstone, Jesus himself had to suffer by going the way of the cross. He had to bear judgment upon his own shoulders, and that's how he's going to restore us to God. This is instructive for us today. We can live, have to live, with the confidence that the Lord knows what he's doing We can't know where things are really going to go from here in all detail. But what we can be sure of is that we are secure because Jesus is the Christ who was prophesied to come. He's sovereign over all. He's revealed himself this way in his word. Yes, Christ has revealed himself the clearest in his word and his work. He healed the sick and the dying. He proclaimed the good news to the poor. That's where his focus was and had to be. He preached and promised forgiveness of sins and salvation for those who repent. And he made so good on his promise when he went to the cross. That's where his father expected him to go, required him to go for the people of God. So it is then, ultimately, the cross that we are to ponder when we think our Savior is letting us down, not doing His task. The cross silences any doubts we may have about His messianic work. For the cross which is something anticipated throughout his whole life of suffering. That, as the climax, is where our Lord far exceeded any expectations we had by offering his own life in place of our life. His redemptive work testifies to the fact that he really is the one to come. The facts speak for themselves. Our Savior was, and He is doing His messianic work, and so He calls us to rest in His work. Listen to my word and watch my work by faith. I know what I'm doing. Still today, I am gathering my church from all nations, and I am moving history ever closer to the day of my return. Do you see that? Better yet, do you trust that he is still working out God's plan, even if you don't understand why he's doing certain things and not others? He's not neglecting his tasks, not one of them. Congregation of Jesus Christ, learn to place your trust fully in him, your Savior, for he is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And that takes us to our final point where we see the challenge for us. Well, the Lord Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He finishes off his reply by issuing a challenge. He knows the expectations of many. He knows they wanted a conqueror rather than one who spends so much time healing the sick and preaching to the poor. He knows, in other words, that it's going to be a tall order for his disciples, his listeners, to follow him. Yet, that doesn't make him lower the bar a bit. At the end of his reply, he instructs John's disciples to say to John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, believe I am the Christ who is to come, and you will be blessed. He's being somewhat confrontational here, just like John had been with his question. Remarkably, he's issuing a challenge, a call to faith in John, the one who once foretold of his coming. And yet, while being confrontational, he's also being kind. He doesn't put John to shame by saying something, and blessed is the one who never doubts if I'm the Messiah. That would have crippled John even more. He's giving a challenge to John. There is blessing when you take no offense at my ministry. The word he chooses there is very important for offense. Very interestingly, it's a word often used in the New Testament to describe the judgment of God. The Apostle Peter wrote later of Christ as the chief cornerstone, and he added that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Same word. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. For many, Christ himself and his work and his word is a rock of offense. And so, yes, many do come to judgment because they stumble over his ministry. This is why Christ already now issues the challenge to spare those he loves from judgment that comes through taking offense at him. This is the decisive and the last message from Christ to John. But it's, of course, not just for John. It's for all who come to know Jesus Christ. Yes, Christ was looking ahead when he uttered the challenge not to take offense at him. He was preparing his disciples for a challenging road ahead. And that makes us think of what happened the night before Christ was crucified. On the Mount of Olives, what did he say to his disciples? You will all fall away. Same word again. Because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus' disciples fell away. They all did. Not one of them was able to hang on to assist the Lord in his most desperate hour in his messianic work. And so the challenge of Christ here in our text is absolutely justified. But his challenge we need to see, brothers and sisters, it comes by way of a promise, a promise of blessing for those who accept him as the Christ to come. That word blessed is, of course, important. It's the first word. With this, the Lord Jesus places himself as the focus of John's attention. John, look at me. Blessed are you if you don't become offended by my word and work, but if you put your faith in me. Maybe John had not thought of it that way until now. Perhaps until now, he was still thinking Look, we are co-laborers. We are in this together. This is why I want to speak with the Lord, because I don't think he's doing his part of the job right. But Jesus says, no, that's not what this is about, John. It's about you believing in me. If you believe in me, you will be blessed. And God's blessing, we know, that includes everything for this life for eternal life. It's all about enjoying peace with God and joy in Him, about having your doubts removed bit by bit. All of this and more is caught in Jesus' words, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What about us today, brothers and sisters? His words are indeed directed towards us. And so the challenge lies before you today to trust that your Savior is fully involved in your life and that He knows precisely what He is doing. The Lord Jesus calls us to faith, to accept Him as He really is. That means we don't consider His church gathering work with impatience, You see, Jesus Christ is not the one who puts up stumbling blocks for us. We do it to ourselves. We can't subject Christ to our own expectations. We move forward with humility, with patience, and with genuine faith that Christ will see his good work brought to full and wholesome completion. Those who do, are objects of Christ's blessing. In this, we should think then for a moment of what Christ did sometime after our text. He died, and he rose, and he ascended into heaven. And as he ascended, he lifts up his hands to bless his church. And Luke Luke writes at the end of his gospel that as Jesus did so, With his hands outstretched, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And so the very last sight his disciples had of him was with blessing hands, wounded blessing hands. They gave this message. I am going to heaven to lay my blessing upon all who don't stumble on account of my ministry from the right hand of god he is blessing his church today so it is to christ that we go to be blessed and so brothers and sisters let me ask you what kind of a savior are you looking for is jesus christ the one or should you go looking elsewhere as he lets you down do you find his work today in the church and in the world, confusing, disappointing, and even, perhaps, irrelevant? Are you ever, to, ever tempted to cry out to him, isn't it about time you start doing something? He comes to you with a challenge. Don't be offended by my work. Don't stumble over it. Put your faith completely in me. I have restored you. To your God, after all. Congregation, listen to the word of Jesus. That's where you will see that he exceeds all expectations. He's the Messiah who is to come, he is the answer to every question of doubt. Blessed are you who rejoice in the wonderful, powerful, redeeming work of your Messiah. Amen.